Father God, thank you for this gathering and for these amazing people and for the community that you're building here. And I pray that as we dig into yet another section of this incredible story that you have passed down to us, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to what it is that you might have to teach us. And as you teach us, not only do we grow in knowledge and wisdom, but we actually grow in depth of affection for you. We grow in commitment to living out your way in this world that so desperately needs hope and love and peace and reconciliation and rescue. So, um, God, my prayer is by your spirit, you would begin to draw us into that ethic. And I pray this in your name. Everybody said, amen. I'd like to share with you a message entitled, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. And kind of like previously, um, where we went back to a time that was a little bit nicer or a little bit happier. Thing is not like <laughs> the other by the time I finish this song. So, uh, again, I have a toddler in the house, so Sesame Street immediately comes to mind whenever I think and hope some of these nice little songs make you a little bit happy and hopefully some of you were actually able to figure out which actually one of those things was not like the other. We are in the book of Numbers, and we come to Numbers chapter 6. And Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, introduces a segment called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. And the word uh, in Hebrew for Nazarite is Nazir. Everybody say Nazir. Now, Nazir is where we get the word Nazarite, but it also means to separate or to section off, to separate oneself. Uh, It comes from Numbers chapter 6, and it begins by describing... If anyone, a man or a woman, would like to take upon or choose to take upon themselves a special vow, and then it goes on to describe some of the things that this vow is going to require. The word for nazir there, which means to separate, is connected to another word, which is this special vow. The Hebrew word for special vow there is often used to mean wondrous or miraculous. So something about this vow, this way of living out for a short period of time, is invoking within the person who's taking this on. I want to see something miraculous or wondrous happen, either in me or in this world as a result of doing these things. It's very clear that the Nazarite vow, the idea that you're taking this on yourself, is a volunteer choosing. You choose at some particular point in your life, and we're going to talk a little bit about the reasons why, but you choose to do this. This isn't a commandment, unlike other commandments. This isn't something that you are supposed to do. It says if or when somebody chooses to do this. This is going to be very, very important for what I'd like to share with you later on. This is volunteer. And the second is that as you read passages like this, I'd like to just remind us that we are actually kind of going back in time, doing a little bit time transport. When we read about what later on is going to be no dead bodies and no wine and no cutting of hair, sometimes in our culture we're thinking, this is a little foreign to us. What is this really all about? And I'd like to remind us, as we have done before, we're actually time traveling. We're going back in time several thousand years to practices that actually were very well known. 
we have ancient documents not only through the Bible but through other inscriptions as well as archaeological finds that people would take on vows like this in all sorts of cultures, in Greek culture and Babylonian culture. So we're actually going to take a look at the ancient practice, um, but remind ourselves that this isn't something that's weird or out of the ordinary for the Israelites. This is something that was fairly, fairly common. And what the Bible is doing, or what God is doing in the book of Numbers, is reminding us, when you decide to do this, these are going to be your stipulations. These are going to be your requirements as you uh, do this. And then the last thing is, all of these things that we're going to talk about are going to be outward appearances. The reason why I mentioned that is because in our Christian context or in our religious context, we're very conditioned to the idea that whatever spiritual journey we are on, it happens in here. And it's an interior, inside, not necessarily physically seen change or shift. But to the ancients, there was not that same distinction between what was happening on the inside and what was happening on the outside. Therefore, if you were making a, a commitment or if you were doing something radically about your faith or your beliefs, you would make some sort of change on the outside. And so as we take a look at some of these things and the things that they did, we're like, what is that? Do they really have to do this thing if they're just simply making a commitment? And the answer is yes, because the language of that particular culture was to put on the outside that which was going on on the inside. And that's a little bit of a foreign concept to us. Whenever Danielle and I go to Israel, I dress like this. I don't really dress up. Uh, I'm a part of a religious tradition, either that I've inherited or created myself, not quite sure, that doesn't wear the collar or the robes. And so when people in Israel often uh, find out that I'm a pastor, they go, you're a pastor? And then they do this. Because even today, they have inherited the idea that what is on the outside is a reflection of what's going on on the inside. For the multi-faith walk, many of you saw that people came in their attire, in the garb, in whatever vestments was appropriate for their faith. Because that is an inheritance of this idea that what is on the outside is communicating something that is on the inside. Okay, so those are some preliminary comments about what this Nazarite vow is. Talked a little bit about the special vow, about how it is wondrous and it is miraculous. And we talked a little bit about how this Nazarite vow is essentially a separation. The word Nazir, which is where we get the Nazarite word, means to separate. And again, by the way, just in case something's going on in your brain as it has with me, this is not Nazarite. N-A-Z-A-R-I-T. That's from Nazareth, the city. It's a different word. This is Nazirite from the word Nazir. So just a little bit of a distinction just in case some people, because I get confused by that as well. Three things, my friends, you are to separate yourselves from. If you choose to take this on for yourself, a special vow, because you want to see something miraculous or wondrous happen within yourself and your community, three things you are to do. The first... Verse 2, they must, by the way, male or female, abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar, which may not be terribly much of a problem, <laughs> made from wine or other fermented drink. This is a no-no. Now, not only are you abstaining from drinking, you're actually abstaining from even going near the grapes, even if they're unfermented or the wines. 
They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Some of you right now, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You're already out. Like, this is not a special vow for me. Number two, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Okay, shouldn't be any problems there. That's number two. And then number three, Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. So, no dead bodies. Now, there's a couple pieces of significant information that are listed there. If you notice, the dead body goes on to explain a little bit further. Not even if your mother or your father or your family members die. You are not even to go near them. So, there's multiple layers of this not going near a dead body. Death in the ancient world, unfortunately, well, it's like the world today, was a fairly common occurrence, and you were very close to that. And so family members are passing away. This is something that you're familiar with, and there's big rituals. There's very significant rituals for how you participate once somebody in your family or in your community passes away. So for you to take a Nazarite vow to say that I'm going to uh, take this on is to say that I'm not even going to participate in the rituals that are important to me, that are valuable to me and to my community when there's a death that happens and that occurs. So that's one level. The second level, as, I, as some of you see here, is that you must not eat any meat because what is meat? It's a dead body. Literally, in verse 6, it says, do not go near a corpse, literally a dead life or a dead soul. Three things, my friends. If you are choosing to do this practice, which is commonly known in the ancient world, no wine, no grapes, no raisins, not even the seeds, you're to let your hair grow. No razor is ever to come upon your head, and you are not to go near a dead body. This is a practice, by the way, that was fairly known, not only in the ancient world of the Hebrews, but also all the way through the New Testament. Acts chapter 18 actually describes Paul um, in a situation where he actually takes this vow. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. So somewhere in Paul's life prior to this time, he had taken on this vow. So what do these symbols mean? What is this all about? There's a couple possible thoughts. Number one, the vine or the idea of wine may be connected to this idea of people who live a sedentary life. And people who live a sedentary life happen to uh, be characterized as lazy or have nothing productive to do. And as a result of having nothing productive to do, what else is there to do except to drink? Now, some of you might know this story of Noah, the, the guy who built the ark and the animals. There's this, part, there's this part of the story that we don't put in the children's book, which is after he lands his boat, he plants a vineyard, and then he drinks, and then he gets drunk, and then cover her ears. Something bad happens between his sons and him. And so that story from Genesis comes through into the 
uh, modern thinking into the idea about what is this vineyard all about, really. So that is one possibility. The vine, even though it is good for the soul and good for the stomach, as the Bible also says, may also have a connotation of sedentary life, laziness, non-productivity. So to abstain from wine symbolically represents that you want to be active and working and producing in this world. There was actually a ton of jugs that are found in Philistine archaeology. This is one of them. And while researching this, there was this quote that I came across that I thought you'd appreciate. It is not difficult to infer from the ubiquity of these jugs, of these beer jugs, that the Philistines were mighty carousers. So in addition to being away from wine because it was possibly about laziness or just sedentary life, this is difficult to do because of the culture that you're around too. Everybody is drinking. In fact, drinking is part of the mainstay. You would have wine or juice at every single meal. So this is really making you distinct. Number two, hair. Hair is a source of somebody's vitality and strength. It's, it's the sign of somebody's virility. And so to let the hair grow and not cut it is to say, I am holding on to my strength. There was actually um, some plates that were found. This is a ninth century uh, Cypriot temple bowl, and it has inscribed on it a memorial to Astarte. And archaeologists believe that after somebody took a vow like this, they would cut off their hair, which is very similar to the act that is found in Numbers chapter 6. They would cut off their hair and place it in their bowl, uh, in this bowl, and offer it as a sacrifice to the gods, their very strength, their very life, their very vitality to the gods. There's this other passage in Judges chapter 5. The possibility exists that during Israel's early wars to conquer the land of Canaan, whole armies would vow not to cut their hair until victory was won. And the, again, the idea that if you held on to your hair, this was a symbol of your vitality and your strength. There was another purpose. You can't hide the fact that this hair is growing. So the Nazarite vow, because of this particular piece, is also a public declaration to your community, your family, everybody around you. I am taking the Nazarite vow. I have chosen to enter into this. Now, they would see kind of how you would act and behave around the corpses, the dead bodies, as well as the beverages. But if you were growing your hair, it was a sign to everybody from afar. This is somebody who has, for a period of time, dedicated themselves to the Lord to see something special and miraculous happen in this world. And that person is publicly declaring it. A lot of people see the Nazarite vow and they think maybe monks or desert fathers, people who go off by themselves and worship and take on that discipline, you know, as an individual. But it's very, very clear that the Nazarite vow does not include a separation from the community. It is a separation from these things, but you are still living and active within the community. And that's going to be really, really crit uh, critical towards the teaching that's uh, coming up there. What's the meat about? Of course, death. Uh, by abstaining from a dead body, you are abstaining from the symbol of death, the symbol of the absence of life. So now these are the three things that you are abstaining from. Now, when I started to Google the images of Nazarite, 
Uh, This was one of the first images that came up. Uh, In the Bible, Samson is dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. But the problem is, I, I look at that picture and I'm like, okay, hair, yeah, Maybe drink, but he's clearly not abstaining from meat. That's, that's my response. This image came up. Uh, yeah. Hair. Maybe meat, but she's clearly not abstaining from drink. That's my assessment anyway from there. And there's all sorts of images that come from the Nazarite. But one of the most powerful and I think one of the most profound pieces that is so simple and... Um, it. it It almost bears, like, embarrassing to call this a point. It wasn't anybody special. Is there anybody here, by the way, that I could ask to be a volunteer really quickly? Somebody wants to be a volunteer? If not, I'm going to call on... No, I shouldn't call on anybody. You're feeling brave? Call on up. Your name? Laurel. Come on up, Laurel. Everybody give Laurel a big round of applause. Hi. It's nice to meet you. Welcome. Thank you. Is this your first time here? Yes. And, you're, and now you're volunteering? Yes. Wow, you're really brave. Yes, I am. This is amazing. Okay. <laughs> Laurel, you are um, one of us. Okay. You're a part of the community. Okay. You're not anybody special. Mm-mm. Neither am I. But you're one of us. Okay. You're not supposed to. You have decided to take on this vow. Okay? I'm going to get a man or a woman. All right. No wine. Okay. No beer. Okay. It's going to be a tough dinner. Not really for me. Not really for you. So you, you have to drink milk. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Now, another piece of your uh, vow is you're not supposed to touch any dead bodies. So no funerals. Okay. Um, no morgues. Mm. Uh, okay. Um, and no meat. Okay. <laughs> now, there's a third piece of this puzzle. Okay. That third piece is that you're not supposed to cut your hair. You mind? No. Okay. I don't. I don't want, you're first, we want you to come back. <laughs> I hope you're not scared away. No, I'm not. Okay. I'm yeah. an extrovert. You're an extrovert. Yeah. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a Nazarite in our midst. Now, this is John the Nazarite. This is a picture of John the. You know, it's a it's an icon from uh, from the. Uh, uh, not an actual photo, so it's an icon. But anyway. So here you are, just one of us, and you've decided to take on this vow. No meat, no wine, no drink, and don't cut your hair. Why? Why have you done this? Well, there's a couple reasons possibly why. One of the first that some have suggested is that a Nazarite would take on this vow because some sort of disease or distress came upon them in life, And as an expression of gratitude, they are dedicating themselves to God as a way of saying, thank you for bringing me through that distress or that disease. There's a second possibility, which is simply as a spiritual discipline to become more holy. You have seen how the priests how the holy people in your community have acted. You've seen their connection with God. You've seen uh, all of that activity, and you want your relationship with God to go deeper. And so you would take on this vow as a result of trying to go deeper. Philo, uh, an ancient historian, actually wrote this. He called this the great vow. 
because for every man is his own greatest and most valuable, valuable possession. And this even he now gives up and abandons. You are giving up essentially your common everyday practice to take on things that are restrictions from common everyday things, either as a result of uh, coming out of distress or disease or because you want to deepen and strengthen your relationship with the Lord. Now, go with me for a second. In your mind, you're hanging out at a party. You're at family. Maybe you're at church. And Laurel, right? Laurel. There's a table over here. Why don't we come this way? Go ahead and have a seat and join the table and and Laurel's going to come sit down, and I'll, I'll come narrate with you. And you're having, you're having dinner. And then all of a sudden, now, they're having juice and wine and probably some meat. I don't know. And they're, they're fairly hygienic, most of these people around this table. Yes, well, hygienic. And then Laurel comes and sits down next to them. <laughs> Arian's like, ooh, somebody, somebody needs a haircut. Now... What has just happened to that table? Again, the Nazarite doesn't leave the community. The Nazarite only leaves certain aspects of communal behavior, but they don't leave the community. Now, Laurel, with that behavior and with that look, (laughs) is now in their midst. What do you all know as the community? What has just happened to your space? So it may be awkward, but what are you eating? Now, what is happening to you? You know somebody at your table is taking this vow to dedicate themselves to God, maybe as a result of Thanksgiving, whatever it is, and you're eating grapes in front of them. Tell me, Dan, what's going on in your conscience right now? Do you feel what's going on? the mere presence of the Nazarite begins to awaken our own consciousness of our own behavior. Dan would say, I'm starting to feel I'm eating right in front of somebody who has vowed to not eat grapes. Are you with me? It has nothing to do with the Nazarite saying, hey, stop it. It has everything to do with their mere presence in the community. Somebody chose to behave this way in the midst of the community, and the entire community's conscience is now all of a sudden elevated. You all know what this is like. You all have probably watched a movie, read a book, or watched a TV show, and you thought, oh, this is so awesome, this is so great. And then the next time you show it to your friends, but your friends come over with their children, and then you watch it with the children in the room, and you go, oh, so, oh, I didn't know that, oh, I forgot that was in there, oh, so sorry. Uh, many of you probably use very flowery language. Let's just be honest every now and then. And it's just, it just happens, we're human, and it's our culture, and that's fine. But if you were to talk this way, whether it's at a business meeting or whether you're out playing sports or whatever, and this person walks in the room, what begins to happen? All of a sudden, the mere, the mere presence of that person begins to elevate our conscience. When we're having a meal together, 
We're sharing life together. Communities behave the way communities behave. But when somebody who has taken a vow to dedicate themselves to the Lord in this very public way, in this way that nobody can hide from, that everybody knows that they are restricting themselves from very important communal activities, all of a sudden everybody in the room knows, the entire community's consciousness is awakened. Are you with me? This is what is so powerful in my mind, in my opinion, about the Nazarite vow. It is not that there are rules and regulations that you are supposed to follow, although that is true. It is that this person, because of their choices, and because of their commitment, and because of their dedication, not through condemnation, not through judgment, just simply elevates the community around them. Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 21 actually speak to very similar restrictions on wine, grapes, and dead bodies. But it is not for the Nazarite, it is for the priest. The priest is also to abstain from these things. Why? Because the priest, the high priest, the representative of the people to God, is about to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Lord. And so this person has to abstain from certain activities that is going to defile him as he heads on in. But there's a lot of distinctions between the priest and the Nazarite, as I've mentioned before. The priest is appointed. You're born a priest. You're appointed to be a priest. This is your job. This is your role. This is your obligation. But the Nazarite chooses this. This is a choice, volunteer. And the priest, most likely a Levite, is actually designated a holy person. The Nazarite is a commoner, somebody just like us. So when we look at the priest, we're transported into another world. We've talked about this a little bit before when we talked about Leviticus. When we see a Nazarite, we go, hey, Bob, hey, Laurel, hey, Pam. So you're, you're doing the vow thing. Okay, cool. It's somebody we know, somebody we are in relationship with. And just like something radical happens in the community when the priest goes to the tabernacle, when the priest makes that work happen there, something happens in us when the Nazarite presents him or herself amongst us. In other words, what the priest is to the holy place of the tabernacle, the Nazarite essentially is for us as the people. This, to me, is so brilliant and so beautiful. Because what it has done, and we've talked about this before, is take that which is holy and separate about the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, all the things that happen there, and brings it once again down here. What the priest accomplishes at the tabernacle, the Nazarites accomplish in the community. The priests make the tabernacle holy because of their work. The Nazarites make the community holy because of their vow, because of their decisions, because of their choices. A couple other points. When you deny and discipline yourself like the Nazarite, you are actually bringing holiness to the community. When you decide, 
I'm, I want to dedicate myself. I want to grow in my spirituality. I want to behave in this certain way. You are actually bringing that holiness to the community. And this, to me, I think is one of the most um, powerful lessons and reminders. When you live in this community as a Nazarite, you, Laurel, in this example, are now reminding all of us that we are actually holy and sacred space. Just like the priest is reminding the people that the temple and the tabernacle is a holy and sacred space. The Nazarite, through their actions, through their behaviors, enter into the community and remind us that every single one of you, you're holy, you are sacred, you are a precious, holy, sacred space. That is what this community is. And that's what happens to all of us when one of these things is not like the other. Laurel, thank you so much for being our Nazarite. We appreciate it. You can take that home if you want. My friends, never underestimate the power of your personal convictions in the presence of a community. This is kind of like reverse peer pressure. Everybody's doing it, so I must doing it. I must do it. But the Nazarite is somebody who says, I'm doing this because either sickness or disease, or I just want to deepen my... I'm doing this ultimately for God, and I'm going to live in the community as a result of that dedication. And just like those other examples we talked about, when you do that, you elevate the consciousness, and you kind of elevate the holiness of that group as you practice those disciplines. And then number two, when you are in the midst of somebody who is practicing those disciplines, whatever those may be, remind yourself, you are sacred space. That's what the Nazarite does. It reminds you, they remind you, that you are sacred, holy space. Designated, dedicated for the work and the movement of God in this world. And that's who and what we are as a community. Father God, thank you for the lessons, and I know there's there's probably so many more, um, but thank you for placing opportunities in our midst where we get to elevate the holiness and the sacredness and the specialness and the wonderment of communities around us. Um, We bless you for this sacred and holy community, something wonderful and miraculous is happening here in the midst of us. And I bless you and I thank you for that. And we pray this in your name. Everybody said, Amen.